<laughs> I don't need him. Amen. I cannot live it on my own. Amen. You may be seated this evening as we look into the Word of God. I apologize to Brother Nick and the media team. I had sent an email this afternoon, including all my slides and verses, only to have him text me about 90 seconds before Sister Rachel finished that he had not received anything. <laughs> so I was quickly scrambling to send him what we've got, and I managed to at least get the slides to him, if not the, uh, the verses. So we will uh, be instant in season here this evening. Amen. <laughs> Best laid plans and all of that. Um, we, we're going to continue with a, uh, uh, just a, a brief two-part series that we began last Sunday evening inspired by a book called The Laws of Lifetime Growth. And this is rather an abridged version of the, the entire book, but it's something I have visited again and again personally and been challenged each time. And um, just seven points that we'd like to, to visit entitling this Lifetime Growth. The book was by uh, Sullivan and Numura, uh, and we'll, we'll reference them here and there, but we've really expanded on it further and uh, drawn from the biblical principles where they are in the book, but it really needed to be fleshed out with further scripture and the like. So um, just by means of a brief review, because we've got four other points uh, to get through this evening, and I want to be cognizant of the time. Uh, so as a brief review, the first thing that we, we talked about was to see your future as bigger than your past. If we're going to continue to grow throughout our life, and not everyone does, many times we settle into a place of average, which is, which is code for mediocrity, uh, if we would really be honest with ourselves. And if we're going to continue to grow, continue to be pushed beyond where we're comfortable, it's because we see our future as bigger than our past. The second point was to determine that your learning will be greater than your experience. We think that we have to have these great uh, ground breaking, ground shaking experiences to derive anything. And yet there are so many life lessons that cross our paths every day. If we just pause a moment, see them for what they could be and derive our learning from those, even something like, you know, <laughs> trying to beat, <laughs> hit that green light, but yet going beyond where you're, I mean, I got to tuck that away because that's going to be a great story to tell in some sort of preaching application, I know. Amen. Amen. And I will certainly give Sister Rachel credit because I'm not going to claim that for myself. But... <laughs> but those, those moments... Those, those parables, if you will, in life are across our paths every day. And so we don't need these huge experiences necessarily if we determine that my learning is going to be greater than my experience. 
Number three, purpose that your contribution exceed your reward. Purpose that your contribution exceed your reward. We want to be intentional about what we receive back with our time and our money, our effort. And yet, sometimes it just doesn't work that way. And the Bible rightly talks about how that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if we have in our mindset that, well, I'm only going to give if I get a yield back, then we've got misplaced priorities and we are not going to be stretching and growing ourselves. We've heard that saying that um, the journey is the destination. And sometimes just in the act of giving, of expending ourselves, regardless of what we get, if anything we get back, that in and of itself has value. That's the journey. So, those are simply the, the three points we got through last week, and I will do my best to get through the four remaining points with what time we have left this evening. Number four is to make your performance greater than your applause. This is closely tied to point number three, I grant you, but it really has more to do with the affirmation that we receive from others and from external sources than it does to whatever I'm, the yield that I get from the investment of my time or my effort. In my mind's eye, I can still very clearly see myself at about nine or 10 years old. And I grew up in the, the woods in Quebec. We lived on a, a dirt road and um, my grandparents lived down probably um, a half mile down the road from where I lived. And so um, I would walk to their place and they lived close to uh, some family owned property there that had a sandy beach and uh, we had lakefront uh, access there. And I spent a lot of time on the lake uh, growing up, fond memories. But I remember one day in particular, as I said, around nine or 10 years old and I was walking this, this stretch, woods on either side, and it was right about where there was a natural spring that came out of the, the, the hillside there. And something changed as I was thinking and reflecting because as I walked down this dirt road on which we lived, I realized that, that my life had changed somehow, and I, I hadn't really even realized it until that moment because I remember thinking that when I was younger, like in kindergarten, that I would, and I wasn't thinking of it in these terms, but for the sake of communicating it tonight, I, when I was younger, I would receive affirmation for any sort of accomplishment almost immediately, right? You'd do something good, and you got that affirmation right away. I remember thinking yeah, that's not the way it is anymore. What, what, when did that change all of a sudden? You know, when you're four or five years old and you do something good, oh, your parents or the school teacher, they just heap loads of praise on you. That's great. You tied your shoes. Woo-hoo! Wow, fantastic, you know? And now at nine or 10, I'm tying my shoes and like, 
Not, nobody is like, woo, high fives. Something had changed. Now that affirmation had somehow morphed into expectation. Right? I was just expected to, be, to do this, and I wasn't going to receive any praise or accolades for it. And in that moment, I had an epiphany that going forward, I could either do things for the rewards and for the affirmation and for the applause, for the praise, or I could do them because they were the right and good and responsible thing to do. And I don't know that that's always been the case since that point, but I I kind of remember thinking that I, I wasn't a mouse who, you know, would run a maze for a pellet or a, a parrot who, who talked for a, a treat, but that I was going to do what was right because it was right. And whether anybody patted me on the back or affirmed that in my life or not, I was going to do that. And reflecting now, many years later, that really was sort of a, a seminal moment in my life at nine or 10 years old because I was able to then go forward into my teenage years. And that's not to say that I didn't feel peer, peer pressure, but it really maybe didn't affect me because, quite frankly, I didn't care what those jerks thought. <laughs> you know, if they were, <laughs> they were pressuring me to do what was wrong. I was like, yeah, whatever, you know. Anyway, as I said, I'm still trying to live up to that goal 30-plus years later. Quoting Sullivan and Yamura, he said, the greatest performers in all fields are those who always strive to get better. No matter how much acclaim they receive, they keep working to improve their performance. They say you need to spend about 10,000 hours to become an expert in something whether that's an expert orator or an expert violinist or an expert race car driver or whatever it may be, 10,000 hours. But none of these people, these experts, hit that 10,000-hour mark and say, oh, great, now I never have to practice the violin ever again, right? Now I never have to do the, the practice laps around the track as a race. no. They don't do that. They continue to push themselves. They continue in the book, if you become more skillful and useful, you will receive greater applause from an expanding audience. This can be intoxicating. And the temptation then will be to start organizing your life around other people's recognition and praise. And in doing so, you'll keep repeating what got you the applause in the first place rather than moving on to something new, better, or different. The applause then will become more important to you than your improved performance. Hmm. Hmm. To make sure 
your performance stays a step ahead of the applause, think of it as being growth-driven rather than goal-driven. And it's interesting I say that on the heels of what Sister Rachel just shared about having goals. Now, I am a person who likes to have goals and markers when it comes to having tasks and projects that need to be done. But there is another degree entirely which we're talking about when we're talking about personal development and growth on a spiritual level. I don't know that I can really say, I, I can make a goal that I'm going to read my Bible every day, but I can't make a goal that I'm going to be more spiritual by this time of the year for having read my Bible every day. You understand the difference? But I can say I'm going to set this goal so that I might grow, and my growth is what is driving my goal. So to be growth-driven in addition to being goal-driven. We shouldn't criticize goals, but if, we can, if we're not careful, even goals can limit our growth. If we set goals too high, they can demotivate us. I've seen this working with young people in Bible quizzers. You know, you set there, okay, you've got to have all 500 verses done and you've got to be uh, quoting them at 95% or you're not going. Well, some kids, they rise to the challenge and some kids it's like, it's like jumping to the moon. You're, you're never going to, and that just completely demotivates them, takes any wind out of their sails. So if we set our goals too high, they can demotivate us. If we set them too low, then we're tempted to relax when we hit them. Also, talking about Bible quizzing, I, I, I had this one wonderful parent. You know, their, their kid would, would um, quote, sort of know their material just well enough to, to get to a tournament, and then they would, you know, um, they would perform at the, the board as if they knew their material better than they actually did, if I could say it that way. And the result of that was more incorrect many times than correct. And the parent, wonderful as she, she was, she would, I remember, rubbing his back and, oh, you did your best, honey, that's okay. And I, <clears throat> you know, I would cringe a little bit to say, he didn't do his best. <laughs> he set a goal, he reached it, and then just sort of settled in and stayed there rather than pushing himself further. Mm-hmm. Because if we set our goals too low, we're tempted to relax when we hit them rather than pushing for our best performance. Let's look at it as an example. And certainly as we go through these remaining points this evening, we're going to look at some positive examples and some maybe cautionary examples. Um, we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 37, 36 and 37, and I will try to give Brother Nick as much of a heads up here as I can. We're going to be going next into Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. But Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37 in the NLT reads in uh, 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 talking about Barnabas. It says, for instance, these were everybody was selling and giving of themselves and, and um, uh, at this time in Jerusalem. And it says there was Joseph, the, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. 
And Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. And so with this, this great act of benevolence, and he laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was wonderful. And there was something that happened. He, he wasn't necessarily doing it, I don't think, based on what else we read about Barnabas. And it, it, it would be difficult for me to try to read into it that he was making some big show of this or that he, he had some ulterior motive, but he wanted to, he had the means. He was a landowner. He sold it. He gave it no strings attached. And yet in response to this, there was another couple who saw this and wanted to keep up with the Joneses, right? They had they they saw the response. Whoa, you know, like whoa. So we read in Acts chapter five, beginning in verse one, that there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. Well, if he was going to do it, then uh, he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. I, I submit to you tonight that Ananias and Sapphira were goal-driven rather than being growth-driven. They had a certain goal in mind, and that was to be seen as these great philanthropists for the kingdom when, in fact, they weren't. Think of it even today's equivalent, perhaps, is so much of what we see on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram where we... (laughs) I need to be careful here. (laughs) I don't want to get in a soapbox or anything, but, but there's so much of what we see has ulterior motives, right? And it's like, well, I preached a great revival and 24 people received the Holy Ghost. Well, couldn't we have just shared that 24 people received the Holy Ghost, praise God? You had to slip in there that you were preaching. Uh-huh. All these sort of backhanded compliments that we give ourselves by the pictures that we post or the, the uh, we need to be careful that we don't have the wrong goal in mind by contrast Jesus avoided reputation he would heal somebody and then tell them don't say anything don't tell anyone and there's some people that may maybe they think that he was using some reverse psychology to, to promote I don't think so He avoided reputation. His goal was growth, and that was the growth of others through serving. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says that he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And so if we are going to have lifetime growth as one of our goals, as one of our uh, precepts in our life, We need to make sure that our performance is greater than our applause, that we're doing things not just if the applause come, the accolades come, it's wonderful. They are a byproduct and they are far down the list, but we perform or we do what is right because it's right and because God has directed us to do it. Amen. Number five, ensure that your gratitude outweighs your success. 
Ensure that your gratitude outweighs your success. Quoting uh, the authors once again, only a small percentage of people are continually successful over the long run, right? There are only a very few Bill Gates and Warren Buffetts, right, that have done it for decades and decades. There's a lot of flash in the pan success. But these outstanding few recognize that every success comes through the assistance of many other people. And they are continually grateful for this support. Many other people. Many successful people become more self-centered and more isolated. We think that while well, we've done it for ourselves and we get, and somehow we keep others now at arm length or we think of ourselves as better than others, God forbid. And in doing so, by the distancing themselves, they can in fact lose creativity and that ability for continued success. When we continually acknowledge others' contribution in our lives, we will automatically create room in our mind and in the world for greater success. Focus on appreciating and thanking others and the conditions will grow to support you. I was probably around 15 or 16 when my pastor took us to a, uh, a Bill Gothard seminar and I don't know how many other teenagers were there, quite frankly. But he said this, and it's always stuck with me, that humility is recognizing that God and others are responsible for the accomplishments in my life. God and others are responsible for the accomplishments in my life. Isaac Newton famously said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. A couple of cautionary examples here. The first in Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 29. We're reading about Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. And it says, 12 months later, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, have I built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor? While these words were still in his mouth. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't, we don't get our comeuppance quite that quickly. Thank God we live in a dispensation of grace. <laughs> and it says, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of, this wor of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Oh, yes. He hadn't put himself there on his own might or his own power, but because God was simply using him as an instrument to try to teach the people of Israel a lesson. Another example, turning to the New Testament in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. 
Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, shouting, it's the voice of a god, not of a man. Instantly, the angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. And if you study that out, that consumption occurred over a period of about five days that he malingered in horrible, agonizing pain before finally dying because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. Hmm. And a positive example we find in Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, beginning to read at verse 12, once again from the NLT. Luke chapter 17 and verse 12. As he, Jesus, entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy, meaning that they were, were purified. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, Praise God! He fell to the ground. Praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you healed you. The word healed there literally means saved you. Not only was he cleansed from his leprosy, he was now made whole. The nose that he had lost was restored, the fingers that he had lost, and there was a salvation that had occurred in his spirit. Thy faith hath saved thee. Now we think of this, but he didn't do some great fearless act as often we think of faith, right? He simply came back to give thanks, to express his gratitude, faith, his reliance upon, and his, his constancy in Jesus as the object of his faith. Thankfulness, then, was a demonstration of his reliance upon and constancy in Jesus. And so it is in our lives as well. When we are thankful, we are admitting, God, I couldn't have done this without you. I need you. Every hour I need you. We highlight the value in people and things through proactive gratitude. When somebody does something nice or presents us with something nice, we, 
we express the value in that action or in that person through our gratitude. And identifying this value, we naturally treat these people or things with greater respect. People and resources and even God are drawn to where they are valued most. If you do something for somebody and they don't say thank you, they just whatever, you know, thank you. What are the odds, right, that you're going to go and help that person again? Maybe you should. I'm just saying. (laughs) Certainly it's going to be a harder hurdle to get over if they come and ask you again. You didn't really appreciate it the last time. Why should I break my back helping you this time? Because people and God are drawn to where they are valued most. That which we appreciate is then made more available to us. God inhabits the praises of his people, right? Because he is drawn to where he is valued and appreciated. And then more of God is made available to us. In 1 Kings chapter 7, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 17, a wonderful example of this in the, uh, the story of the, woman, uh, the widow of Zarephath. 1 Kings chapter 17, and I'm reading in the, the easy-to-read version, the ERV, Brother Nick, ERV. Yes, starting at verse 14, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 14 in the ERV. And this is the prophet speaking. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, that jar of flour will never be empty, and the jug will always have oil in it. He said, I know you're, you think you're going to just bake yourself just one more little bit of food, this little cake, and you're going to go and die, like you said, but bake me a little cake first. I heard a, a message as a young person by uh, Brother W.V. Cooling, who was our district superintendent in Ontario years ago, and uh, he's now in the, the order of faith in our, our organization. And that was the message of the title of his message, Bake Me a Little Cake First. And it was from this story by the widow of Zarephath. And he says, that jar of flour, if you do this, that jar of flour will never be empty, and that jug will always have oil in it. This will continue until the day the Lord sends rain to the land. So the woman went home and did what Elijah told her to do. And Elijah, the woman, and her son had enough food for a long time. The jar of flour and the jug of oil were never empty. This happened just as the Lord said through Elijah. And if I might this evening read just a little bit into the story. I can't imagine that the widow of Zarephath, each day that she went back to the the jug of oil, the barrel of flour, and there was just a little bit in there. It wasn't full to the brim. There was just enough for that day. I don't think that she resented the fact that they weren't full because each day was a miracle. Each day that there was something in there was a miracle in and of itself. And sometimes if we're not careful, we think, God, you know, where's all the abundance that that I'm praying for and I'm hoping for when God gives us just what we need? And that in and of itself is a miracle, and we should appreciate that from the Lord. Hallelujah. 
there was enough for that day, and she appreciated that. She used that. And so the next day, when she went back to the jug of oil and the jar of flour, there was more for that day as well. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. And so we need to ensure that our gratitude outweighs whatever success we are blessed to, to have in our life. Our gratitude should go above and beyond that. Number six tonight in these last uh, few minutes, number six, value your cooperation above your status. Value your cooperation above your status. While I was going through school, I was, uh, I was blessed to work for the Disney company at uh, one of their flagship stores in downtown Ottawa. And I was introduced to a concept at that time, and I'd taken some time off of school and was working uh, quite a bit. And it, I, I could tell you, it, it was one of the best decisions I made. Maybe it's not for everybody, but I learned more <laughs> through that training and that opportunity than I think I would have learned in those few months that I, I took off at the university. But I was introduced to the concept of synergy. And synergy is a core concept in the, the training and the culture of the Walt Disney Company. And synergy is simply that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Synergy is that one plus one equals three. One plus one equals three. The sum is greater, I'm sorry, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And whatever trite phrase you might use, you know, teamwork makes the dream work, right? No man is an island, which implies that we're all in this together, right? Whichever one you might want to use, they're trite and they've been used over and over again because there's truth in them. Some years ago, I came across this picture and Brother Nick, you could share that black and white uh, picture. I think it was slide eight. It was, uh, oh, okay. Did you not get even the, the other email that I sent? <laughs> I mean, I sent it from the pew. All right. This, oh my, that's a shame. I don't, I can't explain that. Is there any way for me to display that? I'm sorry? Okay, we, we will give that a shot. All right. I, and I, I'm sorry for taking the extra time, but as I said, it made such an impact upon me. And I'm looking at my sent email. It's just, it's not there, but I know. I mean, I I know it said it was sent. All right.
So this is, this is, let me, um, there we go. This is apparently a true fi- uh, picture. These are two Civil War veterans. The picture was uh, taken some years after the Civil War. And I, in fact, have printed this off, and I have it in a frame beside my desk as a reminder. And I'll... I'll Need to release that, Brother Nick. You can switch back. I have this this image as a reminder that God uses broken and imperfect men and women to perform his will by combining and accounting for each other's deficiencies. What is lacking on my part, God enjoins me to somebody else so that they might fulfill my weaknesses. And my strengths can be joined to their weaknesses. That's how God, God works. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes to the churches of Ephesus, a wonderful example of this. Ephesians 4, beginning to read at verse 1, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Because of your love. If we have true love and we love our brothers and sisters, yeah, they're going to get on our nerves. They're going to do stupid things that they shouldn't have done. But we love them enough to overlook those faults. Make every effort, he continues, to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And here's the example. Here is the, the ultimate, right, benchmark. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called in one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through you all. However, however, he has given each one of us a special gift. That is the gift of grace. Paul realizes that we're not going to attain to that one, 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 one that he just talked about. And that's why God has given us the special gift of grace through the generosity of Christ. Skipping down to verse 11. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That one, one, one that he'd already talked about earlier in the chapter. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. 
as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow. Just like that image of these two Civil War veterans, one having lost his arms, the other having lost his legs, and yet together they could get where they needed to go if they relied on each other. And so it is in the kingdom of God, in the church. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. There's an old African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. And there are times where I, <laughs> my patience is tried and I just want to go fast. I'll get it done myself, thank you very much. But that's only half the proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go far, go together. One of my favorite verses from many years when I was a young person is Proverbs 14 and verse 4. Proverbs 14, 4. Without oxen, a stable stays clean. I like things clean. I, think I like things. I'm a firstborn, so I like order and structure. These are the things I value. Things are neat and tidy, right? They should be thus and so, right? Without oxen, the stable's clean, right? But you get some big, smelly, dirty animal in there, right? Stomping around, messing things up, pooping over here and spitting over there, people, right? If it weren't for people, life would be so much easier. The ministry would be so much easier. Leadership would be so much easier without people, without the oxen. But you need a strong ox for a large harvest because we can't do this alone. Then guess what? We're going to have to sometimes put up with other people's mess in our lives. But the yield is worth it because it yields the large harvest. Hallelujah. Working with others and creating opportunities for increased cooperation makes greater things possible in our lives personally and in the world that we're called to reach. Always make your cooperation greater than your status and you will find unlimited possibilities and synergy in combining your talents, God-given talents, and opportunities with others in the kingdom. I'm running out of time, so moving quickly to our last point this evening. Number seven. This may be the most difficult. Lord knows he has challenged me in recent years with this one. Number seven. Accept that your questions will dwarf your answers. Accept that your questions will dwarf your answers. For some, their entire sense of security depends on having all the answers. I was probably among the top percentage of those. but almost all growth lies in that which is unknown. We can plan, we can hope, we can think, but we really don't know for sure 
when it comes right down to it. And you won't have all the answers to all your questions. Or the answers that you do get won't seem to be good enough. Right? Sometimes you're praying, and God, why, 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 why? And God will finally concede you something. You're like, that's... mm." Or God will send the prophet to you and say, you're not going to know, and that's going to have to be good enough. We walk by faith and not by sight. And the more mature and the more God presses us to grow and become more mature, the more he's going to ask us to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, he says, So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. That is so challenging at times, isn't it? We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. It's almost an oxymoron. God, why are you talking? (laughs) Riddles almost. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. God, give us your eyes to see those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, oh, then, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. This was the Apostle Paul. As great a student as he was, as learned as he was in the Old Testament, as much revelation that he had received in the, in the desert, as many messages that he had imparted, as many books as he had written, letters, I should say, all that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 to the, the persecuted church. He says, beginning at verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You may think, oh, wow, okay, I'll get much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious inexpressible joy. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. And so we're challenged, but we must accept for a lifetime of growth, we must continue to grow because if we we don't accept that our questions will dwarf our answers, we can grow frustrated. And frustration can impede growth. 
and disillusionment can arrest it altogether. But we need to keep asking big questions. Even when we're faced with things we don't understand, it's all right to ask God big questions because it's the big questions that typically yield the big answers. Even if we don't receive them on this side. As we close tonight, I turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And for all of the heroes of faith that are named and so many more that are unnamed, those that were sawn asunder and stoned to death. And he said, all these, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, because they walked by faith and not by sight. They had questions, all of them, I'm sure. But they kept walking by faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. They didn't get all the answers to all their questions. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. They would not reach perfection. Their work would not be complete without us continuing to walk by faith and not by sight. I don't know about you, but that places a whole lot of responsibility on our shoulders, I think, to continue to ask questions, but accept that we may not get the answers on this side, just like they did. Amen. Let's stand this evening and close in prayer. I pray that something in these seven points might challenge you to grow further in your walk with God, further in leadership, further in the kingdom and your ministry. Amen. And working it all together for his good. I mean, for our good and for his glory. God, I thank you, Jesus, Lord, that you're not satisfied with where we are. You know that we have more potential within us, God. And you poke and you prod us, God, and you lead us into situations that we think are beyond ourselves, God, and yet you do it to grow us, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I pray, God, that we would accept the challenges of, of these seven points tonight. God, and by your grace, we would see them enacted in our lives. I thank you, Jesus, Lord, for your grace and trust, God, that we're going to continue to grow individually and collectively as your church, the body of Christ, God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen, amen. God bless you this evening. Thank you so much for your attention to the word of God. Greet a brother or sister before you leave the house of God tonight. Amen.